yeah, so thanks for coming and thanks for the invitation. Uh, I've almost finished my PhD, so this is sort of a summary of the main uh, themes that I've been uh, working on. Uh, so generally, uh, my interest has been in uh, the diversity of primate brains, uh, both from a size point of view and a structural point of view. And as everyone here will know, uh, primates have very interesting brains. They're generally pretty large compared to most other mammals. And both within and between all the major clades of primates, there's a lot of diversity in size, uh, whether you control for body size or not, and also in structure. And we know, um, we have some ideas about the sort of, sort of ecological factors that are associated with this variation, so things like diet, sensory specialization, and social uh, ecology seem to be very important. But we don't know very much about uh, the genetics or developmental aspects that contribute uh, to creating this um, variation. So it's often sort of said that genetics and development ask uh, proximate questions about how things happen, whereas as evolutionary biologists we're more interested in ultimate questions that relate uh, to fitness and the evolutionary process. But I think that this, uh, this disparity is a little unfair and I think there are lots of interesting questions that you can ask about genetics that relate to the evolutionary process itself. So to give a few examples in relation to brain size, uh, we might like to know whether or not independent uh, changes in brain size or structure have a, a common genetic basis. And if they do, then why are particular genes or developmental pathways targeted over others? And there's also the important issue of constraint. So we know that at a phenotypic level, there are constraints and trade-offs involved in brain evolution. But we also expect that there will be constraints at uh, multiple levels. So understanding how these constraints uh, contribute to how development responds to selection uh, is an important component of understanding how brains evolve. So one example uh, where constraints, developmental constraints might be important relates to the mosaic evolution of different brain regions. So we know that different components of the brain uh, co-evolve uh, where they're functionally linked but they can evolve independently somewhat from other regions. But we don't really know the relative contribution to this pattern of evolution from selection and developmental constraint. So for example, it could be that um, the cortex and the cerebellum co-evolve because there's selection acting on the developmental pathways that contribute to, to these regions of the brain uh, independently, and that selection is acting to maintain uh, the co-evolution of these two structures. Alternatively, it could be that uh, the genetic basis of these two regions has some overlap. So the same sort of genes are involved, the same sort of developmental pathways are involved. So if you have a selection pressure acting in one of these components, you get a pleiotropic, pleiotropic effect in the other one. So we don't really know uh, what combination of these contribute to um, this sort of pattern of evolution. Another major uh, motivation for people working in this field is to try and understand the genetic changes that contribute to uh, the evolution of modern humans. So mostly this is involved comparing uh, the human genome to uh, the chimpanzee genome, or more recently the Neanderthal genome, to try and find uh, genetic uh, changes that might contribute to the origin of modern humans. But uh, we don't necessarily know that uh, the genetic basis of phenotypes that we might uh, describe as being unique to humans have, uh, have a, a unique genetic basis. So for example, it might be the case that in other uh, episodes of brain expansion, for example, along the lineages leading to baboons and capuchin monkeys, you get the same sorts of uh, selection events. So if you were to tot up all the uh, different genes targeted by selection in these three lineages, it might be that there are very few uh, truly unique genetic changes along the human branch or along the baboon branch or along the capuchin branch. So if you want to understand um, the genetic changes that contribute to human evolution, then understanding how uh, um, genetics is involved in producing variation in phenotypes like brain size and structure across primates is necessary in order to work out how humans uh, diverge from this pattern. So how do you go about looking for genes that might contribute to brain evolution? So there have been two approaches that are uh, pretty popular. The first one is sort of from the genes up. 
So it involves scanning uh, the genomes of humans and closely related species to identify patterns of selection or interesting patterns of mutation, and then trying to work out what these uh, selection events might uh, relate to at a phenotypic level. So normally this is hypothesis-free, uh, which can be an advantage or a disadvantage, but it also typically involves very few uh, numbers of species because it's limited by the availability of genomic data. The alternative approach is to take a candidate gene approach. So this is where you uh, identify a gene that's important in brain uh, development, either from knockout studies in mice or because they're associated with human disorders. And then you might hypothesize that this gene is important in development, so it, must, so it might be important in evolution. So uh, conduct a study to see how selection has shaped the evolution of this gene. And you can use these two approaches to look at uh, protein coding genes or uh, to look at regions of the genome uh, which might control how these genes are expressed. Um, I'm going to be talking about protein coding evolution and one of the big uh, um, methods used in, in studying protein evolution is something called the DNDS ratio. It's used as a, a measure of selection. So the DNDS ratio is just the ratio of rates of non-synonymous and synonymous mutations. So synonymous mutations are mutations that occur at the nucleotide level that don't affect the amino acid sequence of the protein. So they effectively are neutral with respect to selection and they're fixed according to drift or a neutral rate. Non-synonymous substitutions, on the other hand, do affect the amino acid sequence of the protein. And usually they'll be deleterious, so they'll, have a, um, they'll affect the protein's function in a negative way and selection will remove these from the population. Alternatively, they, they might be advantageous, in which case selection will uh, fix them at a faster rate than the neutral rate. So comparing the, the rates of uh, these two types of substitutions can give us an idea of what sort of selection pressure is acting on a gene. So if the rate of non-synonymous substitution is the same as the neutral rate or synonymous substitution, the DNDS ratio will be 1 and you can infer that the gene is evolving neutrally. If uh, the rate of non-synonymous substitution is less than the neutral rate, then DNDS will be less than one, and you infer uh, purifying selection, so selection to keep the protein functioning in the same way. And then if uh, the non-synonymous rate is higher than the neutral rate, then uh, non-synonymous mutations are being fixed much more quickly, and you can infer uh, positive selection. So this approach has been used quite a lot to, to look at genes that might be involved in brain evolution. And what you generally get is, a, is, you, is that you might find a few uh, lineages in apes that show interesting patterns of selection. So DNDS might be above one. Uh, and even more exciting, you might find that the, the, the DNDS along the human branch is above one. So you can infer that there's positive selection. But even when you have this, there's a problem of trying to work out what the phenotypic significance of all this is. Uh, so to give a, a real example, these are DNDS values uh, for, from a gene called ASPM, which uh, will appear later. And um, so you can see the claim was made in this paper that uh, the DNDS ratios in apes are generally higher than in the rest of the primates. And it was um, proposed that this is due to some function uh, in, the, in brain development. Uh, but there's an obvious problem uh, with this in that we don't actually know how the phenotype changed along most of these branches. So the only branch in this tree where we actually have a good grasp of how brain size changed was on the human lineage. So it could be that that 1.2 uh, occurred on a branch where there's very little phenotypic change. And this has been pointed out before, so both Rob and Robin have uh, suggested that evolutionary geneticists should adopt uh, comparative methods uh, to test gene phenotype links explicitly. And so this is basically what I've been trying to do uh, in my PhD. So my PhD has uh, two sort of strands of research which hopefully overlap and can uh, relate to each other. So the first has been to look at phenotypic evolution, so to, to try and understand how brain size has evolved through time, and to ask more specific questions about uh, for example, how brain size relates to body size. 
and to use this to provide a sort of phenotypic framework with which to interpret the genetic studies. And the other side is, is about molecular evolution, so trying to look for genes that might contribute to brain evolution and uh, trying to ask whether or not the same genes control brain size evolution across uh, different species. So I'm going to talk about the phenotypic stuff first. And the approach of this has basically been to collect uh, brain and body mass data for a set of extant and extinct species. And this shows the phylogeny of how they're related to each other. And um, the extinct species are just included as polytomies, which isn't ideal, but it seems like the best thing to do when we don't know uh, how they're related to living species. And I use this data set in this tree and uh, three different methods of ancestral state reconstruction to estimate brain and body mass at different points in the phylogeny and then to see how brain size and body size have evolved along different lineages. So the three methods used were a maximum likelihood method, a parsimony approach and a Bayesian MCMC analysis in a program called Bayes Traits. And uh, all of these are based around a Brownian motion model. But I'm going to just talk about the results from Bayes Traits because I did a few uh, comparisons between the results obtained with different methods and different data sets. And it seems like the results from, from Bayes traits are as good a set of estimates as uh, it's possible to get at the moment. And there are a couple of reasons to think uh, that Bayes traits might outperform other methods. So uh, in, in Bayes traits, you can estimate a number of parameters that improve the fit of your data to the model of evolution. So the method is more robust to uh, cases where you're phenotype evolves in a different way from Brownian motion. And it also allows you to test for directional trends to your phenotypic evolution. And when there is a trend in your data set, then you can uh, incorporate this into your model of evolution and help it to improve your ancestral state reconstructions. So this, this proved to be uh, quite important because one of the most interesting things was to, to show that brain mass uh, has a as a directional trend to increase throughout primate history. So these graphs show uh, how well a model of evolution uh, with a directional trend in brownie red fits uh, each phenotype compared to a model of non-directional evolution in blue. And these are posterior distributions of likelihoods. Uh, so you can see for body mass, the two models overlap with each other almost uh, exactly. So it suggests that body mass has gone up and down through uh, through the history of primates. Whereas for brain mass, you can see that the, the directional model has a much higher likelihood than the non-directional model. So that tells us that as you go through evolutionary history in primates, towards the present day, uh, brain mass has tended to get bigger. And the combination of this directional trend to brain mass and a non-directional trend to body mass means for relative brain size, there's a very strong evidence for a directional trend. Uh, and it also tells us that brain mass and body mass uh, can respond to different selection pressures because they appear to have different uh, patterns of evolution. And this in turn suggests that um, these two highly correlated traits must be developmentally decoupled to some extent so that they can respond to these different selection pressures. And although they uh, do have different models of evolution or do fit different models of evolution, when you plot the change in body mass against the change in brain mass, see a very strong correlation. And actually, the correlation is pretty similar to the, the sort of result you get from a species tip regression, which is comforting in a way. So it looks like brain and body mass do uh, co-evolve, but they can evolve independently, and they can respond to different selection pressures. And this is basically what Russ Landy uh, talked about in, in his 1979 evolution paper where he developed a quantitative genetic model to describe how uh, allometry could evolve through selection on two different traits. And to use this model and data on heritabilities uh, from selection experiments in mice to show that uh, there's a very strong genetic correlation between brain mass and body mass in mice. But then when he applied the model to primates, he found that the genetic correlation in primates is only 30% uh, that of mice, that you find in mice. So he suggested that changes in brain mass were only weakly coupled to changes in body mass in primates. And he also went on to suggest that this is very important. We have directional selection that's acting on brain mass. 
So, for example, if uh, primates had a genetic correlation as strong as you find in mice, uh, this would lead to, if you had selection on brain mass, which appears to be um, quite likely, then you would get the evolution of giganticism in body mass, or you would have antagonistic selection on body mass, which would constrain the evolution of uh, large brain species. So he proposed that uh, a reduction in the genetic correlation between brain and body mass may have been necessary to facilitate the evolution of uh, large brain species uh, like humans. So as well as getting uh, general patterns of um, how these traits evolved, the ancestral states uh, reconstructions can be interesting in, as well. So these show the, the posterior distribution of um, estimates for body size of the ancestral primate and brain size for the ancestral primate. Uh, we get a, an estimate of about 50 grams for body mass, so it's quite similar to a mouse lemur or a small galago. And if you use the pattern of, uh, or the relationship among living primates between body size and ecology, suggests that uh, the ancestral primate may have been a small sort of leaping insectivore uh, living in a fine branch niche, which again is sort of what uh, most people thought before, so that's quite comforting too. And to go uh, with this small ancestral body size, we also have a small ancestral brain size. So we get um, a mass of about 120 milligrams, which for a primate with a body mass of 50 grams would give a relative brain size measured by Jarrison's encephalization quotient of about 0.13. And living primates range from 1 to 8 and have a median of 2.5 uh, according to this measure of relative brain size. So it suggests that the the ancestral primate was a lot less encephalicized than um, modern primates. So these next uh, few figures show, um, sort of summarize the results for linear-specific changes in body mass and then brain mass. So they're a little bit confusing to look at, but basically each tip uh, represents a species, and the branching pattern shows how those species are related to each other. And the branch length, instead of being in time, or whatever, uh, is drawn according to the change in phenotype. So if you read down from any point in the, in the figure to the x-axis, you get an estimate for the body mass at that time. So we can see that for body mass, we start off with a very small ancestral species, and then there are big increases in some lineages, but there are also uh, quite frequent um, and quite big decreases in body mass in others. And the biggest uh, body mass decreases are in the Chergalids, which are up here. This is the mouse. This long line is the mouse lemur. I've got a point. Sorry. This is the mouse lemur. And these are the, and the calotrichids. So the common mouse lemur, or the common marmoset is here. And overall, body mass uh, spends about 46% of evolutionary time decreasing. So when you then look at the same figure for brain mass, Again, you start off with a very uh, small ancestral state, and then you have a much more pervasive trend towards increasing brain mass through time. And whereas body mass decreased for 46% of evolutionary time, we find that brain mass decreased for only 6% of evolutionary time. And these reductions in brain mass are actually limited to clades where there's been a, a very big decrease in body mass, so in the calotrichids and the, and the chergalids. And then turning to relative brain size, you see an even more uh, dominant um, trend to increase. So now relative brain size is only decreasing about 2% of evolutionary time. And a couple of notable things are that when, these, uh, when relative brain size decreases, it's not usually associated with a decrease in brain mass. So in both of the clades where brain mass decreased, so the chergalids and the calotrichids, relative brain size is still increasing. And where you get a decrease in relative brain size, it's actually due to, uh, it's usually due to an increase in body size. So for example, in the mandrel and in um, the gorilla. And this is just another way of showing the same thing, basically. So these uh, four plots, the x-axis is time in millions of years, starting from uh, about 80 million years ago, the ancestral primate through to the present day. And the y-axis is log mass. The blue uh, lines show body mass and in uh, log grams. And the red lines show brain mass in log milligrams. Uh, 
And these two boxes show um, uh, sort of parallel increases in cations, platyrines, and uh, stretchines. So this plot is for the evolutionary trajectory of brain mass and body mass in humans and chimps. So this point is where humans and chimps diverge. And you can see there's a big sort of kick up for brain mass and a much smaller kick up for body mass in humans. And this graph shows sort of parallel increases in uh, platyrine, the spider monkey in, in solid, and uh, the II stretch line in this dashed line. And these two show the same thing for uh, reductions in brain size. Uh, so you can see uh, we start off with a small primate, it gets bigger, and then there's an evolutionary decrease in body mass in the common marmoset and in the mouse lemur. And brain mass sort of thinks about stabilizing, but then actually decreases a bit as well. And one interesting thing from this is that um, although the ancestral primate has a similar body size to the mouse lemur, it's not that the mouse lemur has uh, sort of uh, retained the ancestral body size. It's actually the similarities seems to be due to convergence. And another interesting thing with this is that although there's convergence in body size, uh, the mouse lemur brain mass is much bigger and the reduction in brain mass is much smaller than uh, it is for body mass. So if you use body mass as a way of inferring ecology of extinct species, you'd say that mouse lemurs and the ancestral primates have quite similar ecologies. But the difference in, uh, in relative brain size might suggest that they're behaving uh, in that niche in a different way. So the main conclusions from uh, this phenotypic side of the project has been that brain and body evolution uh, have different characteristics and the directionality of brain evolution suggests that there's been strong selection acting on, on brain size across primates and this has resulted in uh, independent increases in, in all the different uh, clades of primates and that although there is a very strong trend to increase there are also a number of limited decreases and these are usually associated with major reductions in body size. So we can also uh, use these results to try and get some idea of what we might expect to see at a genetic level. Uh, so they sort of suggest the directionality and uh, the fact that you have so many parallel increases in brain size suggest that uh, genes underpinning brain evolution must have experienced quite strong selection pressures and that these, this uh, positive selection must have been quite widespread across primates. And then uh, this idea that brain and body mass have become genetically decoupled in primates suggests that um, genes contributing to brain mass may uh, act independently from genes contributing to body mass. So if we want to identify genes con controlling the evolution of primate brain, evolution, uh, primate brain size, then we should maybe be thinking about brain mass instead of relative brain size. Okay, so how do you go about uh, trying to, to spot candidate genes that might contribute to brain evolution? So one, uh, some, one way of doing this is to, to look to models of uh, how different regions of the brain develop. And uh, I've been doing this based around uh, Pascal Rakic's radial unit hypothesis. So this describes how um, cortical neurogenesis occurs. And basically the, the main hypothesis is that cortical neurons are derived from a pool of progenitor cells. And these progenitor cells uh, undergo a whole bunch of proliferative divisions. So each time they divide, they're replicating and uh, doubling in number. And then eventually they stop doing this and start producing neurons. So um, they'll stop producing one neuron. This neuron will migrate up to uh, the cortical plate, but it will also produce uh, a copy of itself, and then this uh, copy will produce a neuron, and the next one will produce another neuron. And so you get stacks of neurons called cortical columns, all of which are descended from one um, progenitor cell. So, Pas uh, so Pascal Rakic has suggested that by extending this period of um, proliferative division, you increase the number of progenitors at the onset of neurogenesis and that would mean that you get more cortical columns and you would have a lateral expansion of the cortex, so an increase in surface area. Whereas if you extend the, the period that these uh, cells undergo neurogenic division, 
you would increase the number of neurons in each cortical column and you would get a, a radial expansion. So uh, these two cell fate switches seem to be very important. The other um, important process that he pointed out was uh, cell death. I'm not going to talk about that uh, today. So we now know some of the, the cell biology behind uh, the radial unit hypothesis. So the progenitor pools start off as neuroepithelial cells, and these cells undergo a whole suite of symmetric divisions to produce more and more neuroepithelial cells. These cells then change the way they divide, so they start dividing asymmetrically. And the first division of uh, a neuroepithelial cell that does this produces a basal progenitor, which then terminally differentiates into neurons <coughs> and a radioglial cell. And these radioglial cells then um, are these progenitors that produce neurons that migrate up to the cortex or the cortical plate. <coughs> so they undergo a series of asymmetric asymmetric divisions where they produce another radioglial cell and a couple of neurons. And then eventually they'll stop uh, dividing this way and divide symmetrically and um, just differentiate into neurons. So these two switches, the switches from uh, symmetric division of neuroepithelial cells to asymmetric division that produce radioglial cells will control the number of uh, cortical commons produced uh, during neurogenesis, whereas this switch from asymmetric division of radioglial cells to produce a neuron and another radioglial cell uh, to a terminal differentiation of radioglial cells will determine the number of neurons produced uh, in each cortical column. So a popular source of genes that, that uh, might contribute to these cell phase switches has been a human, a human neurodevelopmental disorder called microcephaly. So microcephaly is um, characterized by a specific reduction in, in, the, in the size of the cortex after uh, neurogenesis. So these, these figures on the left show a microcephalic uh, individual and a non-microcephalic individual. And it, um, these developmental effects are specific to the cortex, and so other parts of the brain develop uh, normally, and other uh, regions of uh, the body develop normally as well. And it's been shown that uh, microcephaly is associated with seven regions of the genome, and that six of these regions, uh, the causative mutation has been localized to a protein-coding gene. And uh, four of these genes are particularly well studied, and so these are the four that I've been working on as well. So they're microcephalin, CDK5, RAP2, ASPM, and CENPJ. So these four genes are thought to control the way uh, that cells divide by altering um, the orientation of the spindle poles during mitosis, which then affects the, way, the angle at which the cleavage plane dissects cells uh, during mitosis. So it's thought that they might control the switch from symmetric divisions of neuroepithelial cells to radioglial cells. And the way they're thought to do this is that uh, they associate at the spindle poles. So these are the, the parts of the cell that pull apart sister chromosomes during mitosis. And if you orientate the spindle poles on a horizontal axis, that means the cell will divide symmetrically. And the result of this is that you get two um, more neuroepithelial cells, whereas it seems if you change the orientation of these uh, spindle poles, so you have a sub-horizontal spindle pole axis, the cleavage plane is sub-vertical, and that means that only one cell inherits uh, this uh, apical uh, membrane region, which is important for cell fate determination, and that results in getting uh, a radioglial cell and either a neuron or a basal progenitor. So this sort of division is associated with this uh, point in the developmental process, and this sort of division is, is associated with uh, this point. So there's some evidence that these genes uh, have a developmental function in this switch and can cause this switch to change. So this is uh, some results from a Fish et al. paper in 2006 in PNAS. And what they show basically is uh, this is the control experiment, and this is an experiment where they've removed uh, ASPM from um, from, well, they've caused ASPN to be expressed at a lower level in uh, developing mouse brain. So these, these sort of blue clouds are DNA, 
and these little green dots are the spindle poles. So you can see in the control, spindle poles are sort of horizontal to each other, and this dashed line shows where the cleavage plane is going to be. And then when you mess around with ASPM, you can see the spindle poles have now sort of migrated, so they're sub, they're sub horizontal, and this means that the cleavage plane is at an angle. So when you do this, you end up with uh, a higher percentage of subvertical cleavage planes. And the result of this is you have fewer symmetric divisions of neuroepithelial cells and uh, more asymmetric divisions. So basically, if you mess around with ASPM, you have a premature departure from the proliferative, the proliferative uh, period of, of neurogenesis. And as I showed you before, uh, previous studies have suggested that ASPM and other microcephaly genes might have had interesting patterns of selection uh, in apes. So this sort of summarizes the results. So for all of these genes, there's at least one lineage in apes where they have a high DNDS ratio, suggesting they might have been targeted by selection. And the role of microcephaly genes uh, in brain evolution became quite controversial in 2005 when there were these two back-to-back -back science papers from Bruce Land's group that suggested that uh, two of these genes, microcephalin and ASPM, have been under uh, recent positive selection uh, in modern humans. And the controversial thing about it was that they suggested that the, the variant of these genes that has been positively selected uh, is not, uh, is, has a higher frequency in Europe than it does in Africa uh, and Asia to some extent. And so the, the implied uh, conclusion was that these, these variants are being selected for, for something to do with uh, brain size and particularly something to do with intelligence. So it's controversial because it suggests that they're, they're implying that there's a genetic difference in uh, IQ between uh, Europeans and Africans. And a whole series of papers came out and tried to test this to look for associations between um, these different variants and IQ or head circumference. And basically, no one's found anything significant. And actually, uh, a couple of people have come out and said that you can explain this pattern by neutral processes. So this, this might not be selection. This might just be drift or population uh, bottlenecks. So these papers have been a pretty big distraction um, but generally, there's the impression that these genes might have been uh, targeted by selection, and this selection might be relevant to brain evolution. But actually, there are a few problems with these papers nonetheless. So for a start, they don't provide any evidence for an association between selection and the evolution of any particular phenotype. Uh, they typically considered only a few species, and generally they had a sort of homocentric view of brain size, so they were assuming that um, brain size only increased along the lineages that lead to humans, and once the species diverged from the human lineage, uh, brain size stopped evolving. Uh, we also know that microcephaly genes are very widely expressed, and they're particularly highly expressed in the testes, and we know that a lot of genes in the testes are under sexual selection in relation to sperm competition uh, and other things like that. So it could be that selection on these genes has no, uh, no sort of developmental effect. On, uh, on the brain. So I wanted to, to revisit uh, the microcephaly genes and see whether or not there is uh, some uh, evidence that these are involved in brain evolution. So I collected uh, sequence data for key regions of these four genes for 21 species of anthropoids. And the idea was to collect data from um, a set of species that represent independent episodes of brain expansion so this sort of these squares show uh, relative, or these they show absolute brain size and uh, relative to the human brain size, and this these bars show relative brain size. So you can see there some big, uh, big brain newer monkeys, some big brained older monkeys, and um, apes. So the first thing I wanted to test was whether or not there's evidence for positive selection acting on these genes and whether or not uh, this positive selection was limited to any one part of the, the phylogeny. So if you remember, this is based <coughs> on DNDS ratios. So a DNDS above one is positive selection. Below one, purifying selection. And if it's equal to one, 
initial evolution. So when I run these tests on these four genes, we find that there is significant evidence for positive selection acting at a proportion of, um, proportion of codons for all four genes. And I did various tests to see whether or not this was restricted to particular parts of the anthropoid tree. And basically, it's not. Uh, you can find positive selection in apes, older monkeys, and uh, newer monkeys. So finding that there's positive selection acting on some key brain development genes across primates uh, or across amphipoids is, is pretty interesting. But of course, we really want to know whether or not what the phenotypic relevance of this selection is. And in particular, we want to test the hypothesis that uh, selection on these genes contributes to the evolution of a neural number. So to do this, we wanted to come up with a couple of hypotheses that we can test in a comparative way. Um, so the first hypothesis, and they, they sort of both relate to uh, aspects of brain development. So the first thing that we thought was significant was that we know that brain mass correlates with a neural number in a linear way. And the second point is that we know that neurogenesis occurs prenatally and that the growth of uh, brain size after birth is mainly due to processes that don't change uh, the number of neurons. So we came up with these two hypotheses. The first was that we'd expect if these genes contribute to um, the evolution of neural number, we'd expect there to be a stronger association with brain mass than relative brain size. And the second hypothesis that we'd expect there to be a stronger relationship between uh, the evolution of these genes and neonatal brain size than adult brain size. And to test these, we uh, adopted a comparative method. So we're using phylogenetically controlled regressions to test for an association between the average strength of selection during the evolution of each species and uh, different brain phenotypes. So by the average strength of selection, um, I mean the average DNDS ratio from the root of anthropoids through to each species tip. So this is the capuchin monkey, for example. So the idea is that we're um, testing for an association between the selection pressure acting on these genes and the presumed uh, phenotypic consequence of this selection pressure, which is brain size. And this is done in base traits and compare the results of different phenotypes using AIC, where uh, lower values of AIC suggest a better fitting model, and a difference of more than two suggests a substantial difference. So these are the results for absolute neonatal brain mass. Uh, so basically we find that for two genes there is a positive uh, association between uh, brain mass and uh, root tip DNDS. Uh, so these are ASPM and CDK5 rep 2 But for the other two there's no uh, association. So for these two genes, uh, there's no evidence that selection, on, selection that's acting on them is due to selection on something to do with brain size. Uh, one caveat for the ASPM result is that uh, it's strongly influenced by this data point. This is the common marmoset. So if you include uh, this data point in the regression, then the, the significance goes away and there's basically a, a flat association. Naturally, we find that all the color trickers, there are three color trickers in the original data set, and they all have much higher DNDS ratios than you would expect given this relationship and their small brain sizes. So I'm going to come back to this a bit later on. So if you look uh, next at adult phenotypes, so again, we find uh, associations with brain mass and neocortex volume, uh, but only for, only for ASPM if you exclude the color trickers again. And uh, when you compare the results using AIC, we find that uh, the AIC values are substantially lower for neonatal brain mass than for the adult measures of brain size. So this is sort of consistent with the idea that these genes are contributing to the evolution of neurogenesis, which is prenatal. And then if you include uh, both genes in a multiple regression with brain mass, uh, both still come out as being significant. So it suggests that they're uh, contributing to the evolution of brain size independently of each other to some extent. So ASPM also has a couple of other features that might suggest that it's particularly interesting. So the association with neocortex uh, volume is stronger than non-neocortex volume. 
And within the neocortex, it's stronger for grey matter than white matter. Um, so I think this is sort of what you'd expect is, is contributing to the evolution of cortical neogenesis. CDK5 RAP2, on the other hand, um, doesn't show very much uh, difference between these different phenotypes, so it's uh, harder to relate them, the evolution of that gene to a particular region of the brain. Uh, so we didn't find any associations with relative brain size, and we also found that it's not explained by a general association with, with body size. Uh, we tested to see if there's any influence of a selection due to testy size, and there's no association with either relative or absolute testy size. And then we're also aware that um, the p-values aren't exactly um, the smallest p-values you'll ever see. So this is partly because the data set isn't very big. So we wanted to test whether or not you could get these results by chance. So we analyzed eight control genes. These were the only eight, con eight genes that we could find where there was data available for a, a large enough uh, number of species to do the test. And we don't find any association for any of these with, with brain mass. Uh, so I said I'd come back to the calotrichids. And uh, so I wanted to try and explain why calotrichids might be such strong outliers for ASPM. Um, and I was particularly interested in the, in the hypothesis that these, that selection on ASPM in calotrichids might contribute to a reduction in brain size. So if you remember the phenotypic analysis, we showed that there was a big decrease in body size during calotrichid evolution, and this uh, was accompanied by a decrease in brain mass. So I collected some more data uh, for a total of 12 species of calotrichids. So there's uh, calamico, uh, four calotrichs, two lion tamarins, and five uh, tamarins. And just within these species, there's uh, very strong evidence for positive selection. And then when you repeat uh, the regression analysis with, with brain size, this time predicting a negative association because we're uh, suggesting that selection on, on ASPM is contributing to the reduction of brain mass, then we again find the predicted uh, negative association. But we also find another outlier, and this time it's the, the pygmy marmoset. So it seems like there is uh, ASPM might be contributing to the reduction of brain mass in, in calotrichids, but that the pygmy marmoset is doing something completely different. And this is, we think this can be explained um, because the rate of body size evolution along the lineage leading to the pygmy marmoset uh, seems to be really, really high. And it's been suggested that, that the pygmy marmoset is a pedomorphic um, species. So uh, it's sort of neotenous in a way. And, uh, you'd expect this to be caused by a major mutation that affects the development of multiple um, traits, including body mass and brain mass. So the summary from this bit is that we've shown that uh, four key developmental genes have experienced strong selection pressures across primates, which is uh, what we suggested you might expect based on the phenotypic analysis. And that for two of these genes, ASPM and CDK, the pattern of selection seems to be quite consistent with uh, having a role in neurogenesis and a role in brain expansion. And ASPM in particular looks uh, like it might be uh, tightly linked to the evolution of the cortex and uh, may also have a role in brain mass expansion and brain mass reduction. Okay, so I've only got a few points left to make, but uh, so what we're basically saying is that we think these genes might be contributing to the this period of proliferative expansion of uh, progenitor cells. Well, I'm quickly going to talk about uh, the next switch in this pathway. So um, we, we don't know very much about the genetic mechanisms controlling how long progenitor cells undergo neurogenic divisions. And for a long time, I, I don't think people have um, been as interested in this as they have been in uh, genes controlling the lateral expansion of the cortex because uh, we know that cortical thickness varies a lot less than cortical surface area across mammals. And most of the expansion of uh, primate brain size is due to an ex a lateral expansion. And for a long time it was thought that uh, the number of neurons in each cortical column is, is constant. Uh, but recently some data from Herculana Housel um, show that this isn't the case and that neuron density does vary across species. 
which suggests that the number of neurons in each radial unit also varies across species. And in humans, at least, we know that uh, if you disrupt the development of cortical thickness, um, it's associated with some neurodevelopmental disorders uh, like autism and schizophrenia. So it's possible that this sort of axis of brain development could have some fitness consequence. Uh, so I came up with this gene called NIN, which seems to have functions that might uh, contribute to this, this switch. NIN is another centromeric protein. So it's involved in the centrosome again. And it seems to have a role in uh, centrosomal maturation. So it sort of contributes to the rate at which the spindle poles collect other proteins. And uh, also in the way the centrosome uh, connects to uh, microtubules that pull uh, the, the different sets of chromosomes apart during mitosis. So a recent study from Wang et al. Uh, suggests that NIN has a function in maintaining the asymmetric division of radial glial cells. So these are some results from uh, their paper. Basically, it's a similar experiment to the ASPM experiment that I talked about earlier. So you have a, a control experiment, an experiment where you reduce the function of, uh, of the gene in interest, in this case, NIN. And what they did is they knocked out the function of NIN. And what you find is that there is a reduction in uh, the number of cells occupying the region of the brain where there are proliferative divisions occurring and an increase in the number of cells migrating up towards the intermediate zone and the cortical plate. And you get um, a decrease in the number of cells that are expressing a, a marker that's specific to radial glial cells and an increase in the number of cells that are expressing a marker that's specific to neurons. So it looks like when you mess around with NIN, um, you're causing radial glial cells to stop dividing asymmetrically earlier and to start sort of uh, and to terminally differentiate into, into neurons. So basically we're, um, we think that if you knock out NIN, it undergoes this division less and moves towards this point more. So we sort of thought that NIN might uh, contribute to, the, to variation in the number of neurons per uh, radial unit. So again, I collected, uh, collected data for the same sort of set of species, uh, tested for the action of positive selection, and um, found quite significant evidence that positive selection has shaped the evolution of this gene. And when you look at how uh, selection on this gene is relate, relates to variation in brain mass, first of all, you get uh, quite a complex picture. So um, you find that, for a start, uh, cathirines and platyrines show quite different um, associations. And this is basically because platyrines have much higher rates of evolution than cathirines, so they've been shifted along the x-axis. Uh, but within cathirines and platyrines, there seems to be some association between brain mass and, uh, and the NDS. And also for each case, there seems to be an outlier. For cathirines, it's human, and for platyrines, it's the capuchin monkey. And it's sort of tempting to relate this difference to uh, phenotypic differences. So in Herculana Housel's data set, there's the suggestion that platyrines might have uh, higher neuron densities than cathirines. So whether or not you control for surface area or volume, um, platyrines appear to have more neurons per given area. But uh, this is not this is not a significant difference, and uh, it's based on a very small data set. So there are only, I think, three cathirines and four or five platyrines. So it's difficult to know whether or not this is something real or if it's just an artifact of having a small sample size. But the specific hypothesis that we had when we came to NIN was that it might contribute to variation in the number of neurons in the, in the cortex once you account for variation in lateral expansion. So to test this, we used Herculana Hauser's data set again. So it's a pretty small data set, uh, not a lot of power, and maybe the results are very reliable. But we're testing for an association between um, variation in neural number that's not explained by lateral expansion. In this case, it's uh, residuals from a regression between neural number and surface area. But we also did a multiple regression. You get basically the same result. And there seems to be some sort of trend that they are associated, but again, it's not significant. But it's sort of intriguing 
and suggest that maybe NIN is controlling this cell fate switch, um, but, it, but we need sort of more phenotypic data in order to really uh, get any confidence about this result. So it was a bit of a sort of damn squid to, to end on, but thought I'd include it as a way of showing how you might use different uh, phenotypic data to test different hypotheses about genes involved in brain evolution. So if I go back to the, to the aims that I talked about at the start, asking questions about how brain size evolved and the sorts of genes involved in brain evolution, then I think there's some sort of preliminary uh, answers are that brain size seems to have a strong directional component, uh, lots of parallel increases in brain size. And there's evidence that brain size evolves to some extent uh, independently from body size. On the molecular side, it looks like genes that control um, key cell fate switches in neurogenesis, and particularly genes that are involved in the, in, uh, the centrosome and controlling the way uh, different cells divide, uh, might have an important role in brain evolution. And this in turn suggests that there might be at least a partially conserved genetic basis to the brain size evolution. And this means that many of the the genetic changes or selective events that contributed to the evolution of uh, human brain size and maybe other phenotypes um, might ne not necessarily have sort of a human unique genetic basis. So understanding how um, brain evolution occurs across primates is, seems quite necessary to work out why the human brain has departed somewhat. So I quickly thank my supervisor, Nick Mundy, uh, it's at Cambridge. Uh, my collaborators, Rob Barton, is at Durham, but is currently over there. Uh, Isabel Capellini, who was at Durham, uh, is now at Queen's in Belfast, but will soon be in Hull. And Chris Venditti, who was at Reading, but is now at Hull. And thanks to these people for the funding as well. Good.